chapters in the book of Acts. This incredible time in history in the early church and you uh, moving your people by your spirit to take the gospel into all the world. And we pray you would lead us through these chapters. You bless our time together and we, we give it to you now. I ask you to quicken us and teach us and uh, answer us, minister to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so we are, we are in the book of Acts, and particularly we're focusing on Paul's missionary journeys, which go from about chapter 13 through to about 19. Maybe we go on to the end of the book. But, um, and our goal, of course, in this time, we're going to go for five weeks in these, in these, uh, on this theme, is that by the end we would have some handles on the book. We would have a frame. We would have a perspective. We would have, when we hear about Acts, we would have some idea of the, the flow and the message and the purpose of the book. And of course, particularly, uh, how it fits into the New Testament, uh, canon. So, of course, the book of Acts is, is a historical book. If you see, this is the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. There are 27 books. And you can see one solitary book sitting on its own as the historical book, and that is the book of Acts. The Gospels, of course, follows a historical timeline, but they are perhaps more biographical in their purpose. But the book of Acts is a historical book. Um, if, you, if we put this on a timeline, or on a line rather, you can see there you have your Gospels, and there you have your one historical book, the book of Acts, and then you'd have our, what we call our doctrinal books. We don't get our doctrine primarily from the book of Acts or even from the Gospels, but primarily from the epistles, from, from, the, uh, from the letters of Paul and the other apostles. And we can see that the, the Gospels and the epistles are connected by the book of Acts. And what do we mean by that? If we, imagine if you didn't have the book of Acts there will be a massive hole in the New Testament and a lot of unanswered questions. You'd turn to the book of Romans and you'd read Paul, servant of Christ, to the church in Rome and you'd say, wait a minute, where did that church come from? Or you'd read Paul and, Paul and uh, Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and you'd say, wait, who are these guys? Who's Timothy? Where did he come from? Who's Barnabas? Right? We'd have these questions. Um, if it wasn't for the book of Acts. So um, this, it's a wonderful bridge. When we turn to the epistles and we read Paul to the church of Thessalonica, we think, oh, I wonder how that church started. And we turn back to chapter 16 and we see how these churches uh, began. The author, of course, is Luke, the same Luke who authored the gospel. He's a fascinating character, um, he, he joins the scene in, on the second missionary journey. He, interestingly enough, was not an apostle. It's believed that he was also not a Jew, so he was a Gentile. And if that's true, he was the only Gentile author in the Bible. Um, he was a physician, a doctor, a historian. Obviously, as we see, a missionary. He also pastored the church in Philippi for about six years or so. And he was with Paul until the end. We read in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul is right just facing his judgment just before he's martyred. And he says, only Luke is with me. So Luke was with him right to the end and shared some incredible faith adventures with him. 
So Luke authors the Gospel and also um, the Book of Acts. In fact, we could say both of them are penned to Theophilus, and we could say that in fact Luke is part uh, Acts is part two of Luke. They flow together. Um, if you if you put them together, there are about fifty two chapters that cover about sixty six years from the opening of Luke with Zacharias in the in the uh, temple, remember the and the, the birth of Christ, all the way through to Paul being in Rome is this timeline that Luke Luke gives us. And here he says, in my former book, in Acts 1, 1 and 2, in my former book I wrote all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. And here the, the verb for that Jesus began to do indicates a continuation. It indicates that Luke part 1 is showing what Jesus began to do, and Luke part 2, the book of Acts, is showing what he continued to do. In other words, the Lord is still doing what he said he would do, building his church. It's the Lord's work. Sometimes the book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles. It's a bit misleading because not many of the apostles are highlighted or mentioned, funny enough. Uh, And perhaps a better name would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit, or we could say the Acts of the Lord. God is... The Lord is building his church. And Luke gives his purpose at the beginning of his gospel. He says, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So we could say that about both Luke and Acts both the Gospel and the book of Acts, Luke says, my purpose is to very carefully document everything as factually as I can, as accurately as I can, so that you may know that what you've believed is, is, is on a good foundation. Can I ask a silly question? Yes. Who's this John Theophilus? Um, you can... We don't, we don't know anything or much about him. Ah, right. Some believe it was uh, a name that was termed uh, in, in a term of endearment for the church. Others believe it was a historical character, but it seems to be a man of prominence, importance, wealth, um, and Luke was writing to him as a Gentile. Um, so where we are in our course these few weeks as we think about Paul's missionary journeys, we are in Acts 13, we are in Antioch, uh, which is pretty much directly north of, or you can see it on here, directly north of Jerusalem. There's another Antioch over here, Antioch of Pisidia. We'll get there later on the missionary journey. But we're here in Antioch, and Paul the Apostle and Barnabas are poised to go out on the first missionary journey. But of course, to give it full appreciation of the context and the work that God has done, we really need to... Um, to look back, and this is our purpose plan tonight, is to just do a quick overview, overview to bring us to Acts 13. What brought us to this point? Um, something like 16 years have passed since Pentecost. What happened over those 16 years? And of course, this is Acts 1 to, to up until 13. So a quick breakdown of the book. 
in fact, I have a, I have a handout that will be helpful for you. Uh, I'll give out at the end, but this is just a chart on Acts, and it, it does the same thing. It gives you this three-point breakdown and some points on there. You can take that away. But you can see the first seven chapters uh, look at the church being established in Jerusalem. We remember Acts 2 is when the church is born, and then the church begins to grow. Thousands are added, 3,000, and then another 5,000. They're baptizing people. The church is growing unbelievably quickly. Um, And then from 8 to 12, we see a further expansion as now the gospel is moving out to Judea and Samaria, particularly because persecution forces the issue a little bit. The apostles really weren't moving out, neither were many of the disciples. But but the Lord says, you're going to go out one way or the other, and persecution helped them uh, go. And as they went, they had the gospel with them. And then finally, the church expanded to the ends of the earth. And this is our focus these next few weeks. You may notice, actually, that this outline coincides with with one eight, when Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's chapters 1 to 7, and in Judea and Samaria, that's 8 to 12, and then to the ends of the earth, and that's the missionary journeys at the end. So, when we look at the beginning of the book of Acts, we'll notice that it says in Acts 1.3, I'll read it to you, By the way, this is the only place where it says um, that there were 40 days that Jesus appeared and taught his disciples after the resurrection. It tells us that in verse 3. It says, After his suffering, he presented himself to them, gave many convincing proofs he was alive, being seen of them over a period of 40 days. And he spoke about, and this is the theme, the kingdom of God. So it's an important question for us. What did... What did he mean? What was he talking about? What is the kingdom of God? And very clearly to the Jewish mind, to his apostles, and in the context of the Old Testament scriptures, the kingdom of God was speaking about the messianic eternal kingdom that was promised David at the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, where the Lord said to to, um, David that your son your, your, there will be an eternal kingdom in your line. That's why the Messiah came to be known as the son of David. Because it was understood that through that covenant, through David's line of Judah, the Messiah would come and he would have a kingdom that would last forever. So when Jesus is speaking about the kingdom, this was in the heart of every believing Jew. They, there was a messianic expectation that all of the promises would be fulfilled, the covenants would be fulfilled, and surely the Messiah will come, the Messiah will come, he will deliver us from the oppression at that time, the Romans, and he will set up his kingdom on the earth. They were waiting for that. And of course, Jesus was the Messiah, and what were they thinking he was going to do? They were thinking he was going to set up his kingdom. Of course, the, the program changed slightly, if we can say it that way. We'll explain that in a minute. So he tells them something interesting. So he teaches them the theme of the kingdom of God for 40 days. And then he tells them in verse 4 to not leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. And he says in the next verse, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, of course, as we know, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in every believer, marked the beginning of the church. This was the church's birthday, Acts chapter 2. And the kingdom was not cancelled, but it had been postponed. There was a certain point where there was a national rejection of Christ. It's noted in Matthew chapter 12, particularly. And from that time, it says that Jesus began to talk not about the throne and the kingdom, but he began to speak about the cross, that he would suffer, that he would die, that he would rise again. There was a a change in the emphasis of of his teaching and his message. For John 1.11 said, He came to his own, but his own received him not. So he tells them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. And this is the question they ask. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, is that a foolish question? Uh, Many today would tell you it is. There is a camp of theology today called amillennialism, a negating that there's a literal millennial kingdom. They believe that it's spiritualized today and now the church is spiritual Israel. And Israel has been disqualified because they rejected and crucified the Messiah. And now we, the church, inherit the spiritual prince, uh, promises. So there are some who would tell you that's what's happening. And you hear it in Christian vocabulary today. They say, oh, Lord, build your kingdom. And what they mean is the church. But, but I wouldn't use the word so loosely because I, I believe that the kingdom is, is yet waiting. And Jesus didn't say, I will build my kingdom. He said, I will build my church. So, it's important to distinguish the church from the kingdom. The kingdom is a literal thousand-year reign where Christ will reign on the earth, and that's separate from what we call the church age. So, is this a a foolish question? Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom now? And notice, he didn't correct them. He didn't say, oh no, there's not going to be any kingdom. He just taught them for 40 days on the kingdom. He didn't correct them. He didn't say, oh, no, no, now it's, it's all, there's not going to be a kingdom. But he just said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, it's not for you to know the time, which is the chronos or the order, and it's not for you to know the dates or the charos, which refers to the length. So it's not for you to know when or how long, but... And then he goes into verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and the uttermost parts of the world. This is also, by the way, how Luke finishes his gospel. In, In Luke 24, at the end, he says about being preached to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Again, that's Acts 1.8. And you are the witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So, it's, it's, it's difficult for us to explain it um, in, 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 a sh- in a few minutes. But, because of course we understand the Lord, God knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. However, he deals with us and speaks to us and teaches us on a timeline and honors man's free will. So even though he came and he 
was, was presenting himself as the Messiah who would reign, he also knew that man would reject him and ultimately him reigning in the kingdom would, would be interrupted or postponed by the church age. And of course, that was always part of his eternal plan. Anyway, from the beginning, Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So, when we go back to um, Matthew chapter 16, there's that wonderful scene where Jesus is with his disciples and he says to them, who do men say that I am? And at this point, the, the leaders of Israel had already rejected him. That's Matthew 12. And he says to them, listen, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers with that wonderfully inspired answer and says, oh, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, oh, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, the Catholics may uh, apply that verse a particular way, but what Jesus was saying Upon this rock, he wasn't referring to Peter, <laughs> definitely wasn't referring to him as the first pope, but he wasn't referring to Peter and saying, upon you, Peter, I will build my church. He was saying, upon this rock, and the rock he's referring to is the revelation of who Christ is that Peter just uttered. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus was like, right, I will build my church on that truth on who I am, on why I came here. And of course, this is the first mention of church or ecclesia. At this point, the, the apostles made a nudge each other and said, ecclesia, church, like what is he talking about? This is the first mention. They had no, no idea about this until then. And in verse 21, just right after this, it says, from that time, from that time, this is a key time, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and must be killed on the third day. You remember Peter then took him aside and said, rebuked him and said, you will not go to the cross. Why? We've we got to sympathize with poor Peter. He always gets a hard, you know, bad rap for that. But of course he was expecting Jesus to go to the throne, not to the cross. What are you saying? And he, and he rebuked the Lord, and the, the Lord rebuked him right back and said, no, this is why I came, Peter. So this diagram perhaps is, is helpful. Um, this is just a little diagram to help us think it through, that this is the prophetic eye of the Old Testament, and there were certain things that could be seen through the prophecies and certain things that could not be seen. So these two peaks could be clearly seen. This is Christ's first coming, and this is Christ's second coming. And we know that when we look at the Old Testament prophecies, there are clear prophecies that point to the suffering servant or the lamb that would be slain, and clear prophecies that point to the king who would come and reign. And it was hard for the Jewish mind to reconcile the two, which is part of the reason why the Duke could not recognize Jesus as the Messiah, for he went to the cross. My Messiah will reign on a throne. But of course, if I'm standing where that prophet stands and I look at the two peaks, I I can't tell them apart. But when you stand where we are, looking at it from here, you can see clearly, oh, there's two advents. He came once and he will come again. And now we clearly see how the prophecies will be fulfilled and relate. 
However, this part here, the church, is something that was not seen by the prophetic eye. It was something that was not anticipated. So, um, there's a little timeline chart here as well. This is just, don't let these confuse you. We don't need to know them. or They're just to, tools to help us think it through again. So, again, you could look at those two mountain peaks. This is the first one, and this is the second one where he will come again. The first one, the cross. The second one, the throne. The first one, the cross. And then in the middle, you have the church age. And then Jesus will return, and there's the kingdom uh, yet to come. So he told them to wait for the promise, the Holy Spirit. And this takes us into chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, this was another 10 days. It was 50 days in total, 40 days he taught them and appeared. Another 10 days they waited with one accord in one place. And suddenly a sound from heaven as a as mighty wind and um, the whole house was filled where they were sitting and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came and rest on them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues. And of course, by the way, this Greek word is languages. And it was necessitated that they were gifted to speak other known languages. And although some charismatics today might, to, might like to look to Acts 2 or Acts 8 to... to um, to justify or confirm the the unknown tongue that's used in charismatic churches today. This is very clearly speaking of known languages. And it was needed because this was Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost happening, thousands of people. And if you read Acts 1, you'll see that all of these different nations are represented in those that were present. So for, 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 for them to be able to communicate it was not only a sign, but there was a purpose in it. Uh, it was, it was a, a supernatural gift. But that's, uh, that's besides the point uh, for now. So, and at Pentecost, of course, Acts 2, Peter, now one of the leaders in the church, the, the, the fisherman from Galilee who denied the Lord, now he stands up, now he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He preaches the first message at Pentecost. It's an incredible message and uh, if you want, we, we have all of these uh, previous chapters of Acts uh, on, on, on the website if you want to catch up. We, we went through Peter's message. But effectively, he, he shows that Jesus is the Messiah by looking at his life and the miracles that he performed, by looking at how his death was a, fulfilled so many prophecies and that his res, he rose from the grave and he says, and we are witnesses of that. Just like Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. Why? Because they had seen the resurrected Christ. And Peter says to them, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And there you have it, first harvest on on Pentecost. 3,000 people added and baptized. Incredible uh, time. And verse 47 of that same chapter says, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And here, so here we see the birth of the church, and very quickly we see the growth of the church. Incredible things happening. Jesus said, I will build my church. And where do you see that happening? We see it start right here at the beginning of the book of Acts. 
This leads us straight through to Acts chapter 3. We're at the gate of the temple. There is the lame man who has been there every day for most of his life, all of his life perhaps, and he is begging. And Peter and John, um, uh, in the name of Jesus, they heal him. He gets up. And again, it's an incredible miracle because everyone knows this lame man and it has the desired effect. Everyone is gathered to what's called the Solomon's porch. And Peter realizes the moment, oh, I have a captive audience and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, we have the second sermon in Acts chapter 3. And again, it's an amazing message. Um, And he says to them, why are you looking at us as if somehow we did this miracle? And then he brings it right back to the Lord. Jesus of Nazareth, who you crucified, who is resurrected by his power, this man is, uh, stands before you whole today. Now, right after this, in chapter 4, we see the first opposition. We see the first seeds of persecution against the church. And rem- don't forget the B part of Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So with the building comes the opposition. Interestingly enough, also in Ezra chapter 4, the building of the temple, and in Nehemiah 4, the building of the wall, and in Acts 4, so 444, we can see that's where the persecution uh, begins. Um, So as they spoke to the people in chapter 4, verse 1, the priests and the captain and the Sadducees, they're all coming against them, and it says that they are greatly disturbed that they taught the people and taught the resurrection. Exactly like uh, uh, Nehemiah, greatly disturbed that someone would seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And they laid their hands on them and they put them in custody until the next day. But verse 4 of chapter 4 says, But many who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So here's the second harvest, 3,000 and now 5,000. Opposition, the messengers getting locked up, but those who heard believed. And even though there was opposition, Jesus still um, doing an incredible work. And they stand before the Sanhedrin. Now this is basically the, um, like the supreme court of the land, the Jewish, the high court of, of Judaism. There were 70 of them. And you would, if you would be, and there are four times in the book of Acts we see uh, uh, different ones be brought before them. This is the first, uh, Peter and John in chapter 4. In the next chapter, you'll see Peter and the apostles together before the Sanhedrin. In chapter 6, Stephen, at his last final judgment before he's stoned to death, is before the Sanhedrin. And then later in our studies, we'll see Paul himself comes before the Sanhedrin. And Peter, as he stands before them, it's incredible his boldness and how he he takes no prisoners. He goes right for the jugular. He he brings them to the gospel as quickly as you can imagine. And uh, in verse 12, he says, there's no salvation in any other, there's salvation in no other name, but by this name, uh, Jesus. Incredible. Now, They threaten them, tell them not to preach, let them go. And, of course, they preach again in the next chapter. In chapter 5, we see, remember, the birth of the church, the growth of the church, 
And now we see the first case of church discipline, which is dealt with quite harshly. It's the famous story of Ananias and Sapphira. It tells us they lied to the Holy Spirit. They had a devious plan to deceive not only the Lord, but the leaders and the church. They lied about the money and they wanted to the fame and to be recognized when they saw how Barnabas was honored because of his giving and this type of thing. And of course, God saw right through it. And you read the story and you think, wow, that was so severe, the way that God dealt with him. He first struck down Ananias dead. And when Sapphira, after she'd made herself look wonderful and make her grand entrance, so everyone would say, look, here comes generous Sapphira who gave uh, the same thing happens to her. And we could say, why did God deal so severely with it? This was a key monumental time. The birth and the growth of the early church. No time for games or messing around or hypocrisy. God wanted to lay a clear foundation through the apostles, through the leadership in the church. Similar to when Joshua was leading the people into the promised land and Achan stole some of the forbidden spoil. Same thing. God made a really severe example because of that particular time. So... um, So they they deal with that in the beginning. Then the apostles, there are miracles that God is doing at the hands of the apostles. Um, And again, we see the apostles brought before the council. This time, one of the wise rabbis called Gamaliel, who later we find out was the teacher of Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the apostle Paul. He's an incredibly famous teacher. His nickname was the beauty of the law because he was such an incredible teacher and knew the the word. This was the Apostle Paul's teacher of the Old Testament. And he gets up with a word of wisdom and says, listen, if this is of God, we can't stop it. If it's not, it will come to nothing. And it kind of fizzles out because of that. And they let them go again. There's continued persecution, but it doesn't stop the apostles. Um, uh, And we read in verse... uh, Mm-hmm. 14, again, these phrases all the way through. Believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Um, again, they, we've, they find themselves locked up, but the angel comes and releases them and says, go and stand in the temple and speak to all the people. And daily in the temple, in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Okay, so again, we're seeing this this context from Acts chapter 1, we see the, the, um, the ascension of Christ in chapter 1 and the addition of a, a, another apostle. Uh, Matthias takes the place of Judas in cha- chapter 2. They're waiting in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit comes. The church is born. There is incredible spiritual dynamics happening through the hands of the apostles, through the messages of the apostles. 3,000 saved in Acts 2. Another 5,000 the following chapter some persecution and the growth of the church. And now in chapter 6, we see there's a need for some organization. Rapid growth. We see some strains on the church. And it's a wonderful uh, 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 chapter we see in these verses. The apostles said, Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. There was business of administrating um, funds and food, etc. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. 
right? The apostles are saying, listen, we should be teaching and preaching and studying and praying. We need to appoint men to take care of this business. And of course, I love this uh, phrase here in, in verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose them, and you can see them listed there, Stephen. And two, those two first ones, Stephen and Philip, of course, become prominent characters in the, in the following, well, right in this chapter, actually, Stephen, we see his story. And look at the result of this. And of course, this looks at the application of leadership of deacons and, of course, elders in the church. We can see, although they're not named here, this is the primary model for it that we see clearly defined in, in the pastoral epistles. And look at the result. Then the word of God spread and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Isn't that great? That's the fruit of it. So if I'm a deacon and I'm serving in an area, I can, I can put it into a certain context. Because I am serving in a certain area, this is the result. That the word of God is able to spread and have free course and the disciples can be multiplied. And then we see Stephen particular uh, particularly is is highlighted as a character he's one of the deacons an incredible character a man of incredible faith and uh, and 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 the holy spirit uh, uses him incredibly he's disputing with certain ones they cannot refute his wisdom um, and so what they do is they bring him before the sanhedrin this is the third time we hear about being brought before the sanhedrin and they say, listen, are you blaspheming against the temple and the law? Is this true? And again, Stephen, with incredible boldness. It's the longest discourse in the whole of the New Testament, Stephen's message. It's incredible. And again, he, he, brings, he, he goes back through their history, brings them to the coming of the Messiah, the cross and the resurrection. And he just says, that's it. That's, that's the truth. And... Um, and they, at the end of the chapter, it's, it's such a graphic scene. Uh, they cried with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. They cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And it tells us, at the end of the verse, they laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is the first mention of Saul of Tarsus, who will become the Apostle Paul. It's such a wonderful story, incredible history that God would choose Saul of Tarsus, of all people, to become the Apostle Paul. And this is where he's introduced. He is there. It says that he's giving his consent or his vote. Some believe that word vote means that he was actually a member of the Sanhedrin, one of those 70. It's very possible but he was there giving his vote, and now he's going to become the prominent leader of the persecution against the church. And we read this in the next verse in, of chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death, the great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered, they were dispersed like seed, like grabbing a handful of seed and casting it out. This is what happened through the persecution. And there is the saying that the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. Even the persecuted church of today, there was so much that comes against it, but Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail. I will build my church. 
Um, persecution, as horrific as it is, uh, even that is something that God can use. And they're scattered through the regions except for the apostles. And here we see verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women and committed them into prison. And if we read his own testimony later in chapter 22 and 26, you'll see that he is, he is, they are being uh, thrown into prison. They are being forced to blaspheme. Imagine what that means. And they were murdered at his hands. Now, so the persecution is severe. At the moment, it's in Jerusalem, but it's going to uh, start moving, particularly at the hands of the Apostle Paul. Uh, sorry, Saul of Tarsus, let's call him now. Therefore, those who are scattered went everywhere preaching the word. That's the good result of it. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And we're not going to follow that part of the story. You can read that on your own in the rest of chapter 8. Philip and the Samaritans. This is the second part of Acts 1.8 in Jerusalem and Samaria. And that happens under Philip. But we'll jump to chapter 9. Uh, that's the journey of Philip. He goes from Samaria. He ends up in Caesarea. We meet him later. But chapter 9 is, of course, the glorious conversion of Saul. And it says, I don't have these chapters with me, but it says in verse 1 of chapter 9, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any of the way, whether men or women, he would bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, Let's pause there and consider a little bit about Saul's background because, of course, he's the main character that we're going to be looking at going forwards. Um, I'll read you what he says about himself in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, I was persecuting the church. And as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He's being forced to boast a little bit about his pedigree, about his status. He was born around 1 AD. It's believed he was killed in uh, 66 AD. So he would, he's almost the same age, 66, 67 years old. He would have been martyred. It's believed he was beheaded under Nero's persecution. Um, and he was born in the Jewish community of Tarsus, which I'll show you a map later. But if you remember, Jerusalem goes straight up to Antioch. And if you just follow around the Mediterranean, you come to Tarsus, where he was from, in the province of Cilicia. When he was eight days old, he would have been circumcised, and they named him Saul. He was brought up in the strictest sense a Jew. He would have known the scriptures incredibly, as we mentioned, had one of the best teachers known at that time. He would have been educated with his mother, though, until he was five, with his father until he was ten. Saul's father was also a Pharisee himself and also a Roman citizen, and Paul was born uh, a freeborn Roman citizen. And at ten years old, he would have gone to Jerusalem, and that's when he would have started rabbinical school, and that was under Gamaliel. 
And when he was around mid-twenties, he would have gone back to Tarsus. And as we understand, at some point he returned to Jerusalem, particularly to help the Sanhedrin and the Jews deal with this, this horrible sect called the Way, those who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was coming back to be instrumental in bringing that to an end. So it's fascinating to think, who would God use to take the gospel to the Gentiles? We see the gospels, the death, the burial, the resurrection. We see the birth of the church, the Holy Spirit coming, and Jesus saying, you will take the gospel. Jerusalem, yes. Samaria, Judea, yes. But also to the uttermost parts of the world. What does that mean? That's all the Gentile nations. And who is he going to choose to do that? Mind-blowing. Saul of Tarsus. And of course, we know that the Apostle Paul in his own letters refers back to this with the wonder of grace in his heart. He, he says many times, I know I don't deserve this. I know I am a vessel of grace. I am a trophy of grace. I am a messenger of grace. I know I don't deserve it. I persecuted the church. And nevertheless, I am what I am by the grace of God. So, here in chapter 9, he has got his letters of authority. He's on his mission from Jerusalem to Damascus. And his plan is, oh, I'm going I'm to go through the, the synagogues and I'm going to drag people out, bring them back bound to Jerusalem. And suddenly, verse 3, a light from heaven. He has a meeting, an encounter with the Lord. Um, and we read in verse 15 of, of chapter 9, He says to Ananias, one of the disciples in Damascus, he says that this man is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. And that's the first time we hear God give any definition for what Paul's ultimate purpose would be. Paul himself refers to himself as the apostle to the Gentiles in Romans 11. This was his main uh, mission. We, we, you, may, you may know that the Jewish church in Jerusalem, which was under the leadership of Peter, James, and John, they were still very Jewish in their thinking. Um, even when in, in the next chapter, chapter 10 and 11, when Peter has to go to Cornelius, God has to give him this vision, which first of all, he, de- he denied the Lord three times, and then he denies the Holy Spirit three times. He says, no, it can't be, it can't be. And the Lord says, no, don't call it unclean. You, you go down and he, just to help him go to Cornelius' house, go into the house of a Gentile and be with these unclean Gentiles so he could preach the gospel. That's why God, for some reason, God saw that he needed to choose someone else who was outside of that Jewish fold, who was outside of that timeline. He took Paul, who was an apostle born out of due time, and he would be the one that would would take the gospel to the Gentiles. So, in Acts 26, when Paul is rehearsing his own testimony, he says here, uh, where, where the Lord said to him, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. Now, any careful student of the Old Testament would see that it was always God's intention. Of course, it's very obvious It was always God's intention that the gospel was to go through the Jews, but to all people. We see that even in the Abrahamic covenant. 
through your seed, Abraham, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the gospel in seed form. I send you to the Gentiles to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of their sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, in verse 23 of chapter 9, it says, Now after many days were passed, now what's happened is Saul comes into Damascus blind, he meets Ananias, he prays for him, he Saul is baptized, the scales fall from his eyes, and it says immediately he begins to preach in Damascus. Imagine, he begins all of a sudden, this wealth of knowledge of this educated Pharisee, there's a drop and this illumination, he sees Christ in everything. And he is preaching boldly, persuading people. Now in verse 23 it says, Now after many days were passed. Now these many days... Uh, are the three years that Paul is taken to Arabia. Luke doesn't include that in his commentary, but we know this from Galatians 1, because Paul says, um, before he went to Jerusalem, he was three years in Galatia, now, uh, Arabia, sorry, three years in Arabia. And the question is, well, why was he three years in Arabia? What was happening there? And of course, we don't have a book in the New Testament, Paul's days in Arabia. We don't know fully. But we certainly know, we can certainly assume that this was the period where God gave him an abundance of revelations that we read about in 2 Corinthians 12, where he said, I I was caught up into the third heaven, I received an abundance of revelations, um, and and the Lord appeared to him and spoke to him. Because remember, we know now from the New Testament and the epistles, particularly Paul's epistles, that it was him who would interpret the cross, who would, who would bring out the meaning of grace, who would frame the, the, the glory of our salvation, the security of our eternal salvation. It was the Apostle Paul who would bring these incredible doctrines of grace and Christ and salvation to such clarity in his letters. And where did he, where, where, where did he learn that? but in those three years in Arabia. In Galatians 1, Paul says, I wasn't taught this, Galatians 1, 11 and 12, I wasn't taught this, no man taught me this, I got this by revelation of Jesus Christ. So, he had the three years and then he, came, he comes back to uh, Damascus. Um, the Jews plot to kill him, but their plot became known to Paul and he is lowered down in a basket. And this is how his wonderful ministry begins. Uh, he's lowered down off the basket, off the, off, and he, he says, where shall I go? The basket hits the ground. Where shall I go? I'll go to Jerusalem. Now, this is the first time he'd been back in Jerusalem for three years, and he was a different man. Remember, he came as Saul of Tarsus to persecute the church, and he comes back now. Oh, he's, he, is, he is the Apostle Paul. And he comes to Jerusalem and he, he wants to tell the disciples, I'm a Christian now, but none of them believe him. It says in verse 26, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe he was a disciple. We may understand that. And then we read these words, but Barnabas, 
verse 27. Barnabas, oh, he becomes a key character in the missionary journeys. Oh, Barnabas, such a great character, great person. It says, but Barnabas took Saul, brought him to the apostles and persuaded them and told them, listen, you've got to hear this guy preach. You, this guy, you, you sit down with him for a while. This guy is the real deal. And they said, okay, so he stayed with them. We, we, we learned from Galatians again. He only really saw Peter at that time. He was with Peter for 15 days. Imagine the conversations they had. Imagine what Paul wanted to ask Peter and what Peter wanted to ask Paul. And then, of course, there was more persecution. They said, listen, go to Tarsus. So they send Saul, or now the Apostle Paul, back to his hometown, Tarsus, where we have to hit the pause button, and he stays there for a few years until God's timing is right to bring him to the foreground to be the major uh, teacher and apostle in Antioch from where they're sent out. The next chapter, of course, is uh, Peter going to Caesarea. This is the first Gentile convert. Uh, It was Peter that was given the keys. Remember, the Lord says, I will give you the keys, Peter, and keys open doors. It was Peter who saw the gospel reach the Jews in Acts 2, the Samaritans in Acts 8, and now the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Um, And it was, of course, a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius who was seeking God in his heart, and the Lord sends Peter to him uh, by giving him a vision that he would go and take the gospel, goes into his house, and he gets to this point in the message, to him all the prophets witness, whoever believes, and at that moment, all of those in that house, Peter hadn't even finished his message, and the Holy Spirit came, and they all got saved, just at the word believe. Now, if we jump to the end of chapter 11, we'll see that some of them from Cyprus and Cyrene were preaching, and the hand of the Lord was upon them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. So in Jerusalem, the news is getting back to them, that Gentiles are getting saved, Greeks are getting saved. Have you heard what's happening in Antioch? We need to send someone. Well, let's not send Peter, because we know where he stands. He's telling us the story about Cornelius. Let's send Barnabas. So Barnabas goes, and when he comes to Antioch, this wonderful verse 23, when he came, he saw the grace of God and encouraged them with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And then this incredible verse, then Barnabas departed to Tarsus to seek Saul. Barnabas knew, you know what? I'm not the man for this job. This needs, this needs the Apostle Paul. And even though the, the, the leaders in Jerusalem said, listen, Barnabas, look, look me in the eye. Tell me you understand. This is your mission. You go to Antioch. You see what's happening and you come back. Got it? Got it. But no, he goes way beyond Antioch, all the way over to Tarsus on a mercy mission that's needed. And he seeks for Saul. Martin Luther says this is maybe one of the most amazing verses in the Bible, for without Barnabas would have there been an Apostle Paul. We would perhaps conclude, yes, because God would have a way. But nevertheless, Barnabas was so key in this. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. 
For a whole year they assembled with the church and taught many people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So they had a Bible school. First thing they did for a year, teaching classes, teaching doctrines. And Paul, of course, was the key leader there. So we see that in these chapters, particularly chapters 8, 9, 10, sorry, chapters, yeah, uh, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, these middle chapters, they are very transitional. We see three things transitioning. We see the emphasis going from Peter to Paul. We see it going from the Jews only to the Jews and the Gentiles. We see the understanding is going to be going from believing in Jesus and still subscribing to keeping the law to just believing and living in grace. And of course, Jerusalem, we see it move from Jerusalem as the center to Antioch as the center. So these are real transitional chapters that bring us to chapter 13, where all of a sudden, if we turn there without doing this review, we would have a lot of questions. But now we see God has set the stage, prepared this man, brought him to this moment where he was in this Gentile, predominantly Gentile church in Antioch, He'd had the revelation, he had the gospel, and now the Holy Spirit will set him and Barnabas apart for this mission. We'll just quickly mention what's happening back in Jerusalem at this time, and this is uh, chapter 12. Unbelievable persecution happening uh, back in Jerusalem. Uh, James is martyred. Of course, there are many martyrs by now, but this is the first apostle, and in fact the only apostle in the book of Acts who is martyred. But Peter is delivered. Remember the famous story? He's in prison and the church is praying and the angel lets him out. So the Lord allows James to be martyred but spares Peter. And it's no coincidence what's happening here. Number one, the revival in Antioch. Number two, the persecution in Jerusalem. And number three, to make things worse for them in Jerusalem, there is a famine. And uh, the, the church in Jerusalem, even through the epistles, we see how the church was always a poor church. And they were often had to humble themselves and, and have their needs met by their Gentile brothers in the other churches. Um, and of course, what happens is Barnabas and Saul, he's still called Saul, although he's the apostle, take an offering to Jerusalem, see the persecution um, and they decide to leave again. And when they leave, 1224 says, the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose name was Mark. And we'll have more to mention about him later. This is the same Mark who writes Matthew, Mark, the second gospel, and uh, joins them on the first missionary journey. If we just looked at a timeline, uh, just in review, this is when Saul would have been born, about 1 AD. This is his education. Around 29 AD is Pentecost. Around 36, the stoning of Stephen. Around 37 AD, and of course, if you read different commentaries, some of these dates differ a little bit. So um, he was, I think, uh, four years older than, than, uh, than Christ. 37 is his conversion. These are the years in Arabia. Um, and here we are in Antioch in, verse, in, in, uh, in 41 AD. 
he goes to the, for the famine in Jerusalem. And then a, around here, you'll read different dates, some 42, 43, but their first missionary journey is just about to begin. Okay, so that sets the stage for us for next week. We're going to be launching into that first missionary journey. If you can, be reading uh, chapters 13, 14, especially those two. That's the journey. Chapter 15 is the Jerusalem Council, but see, see how you do. Okay, any uh, questions or reflections? Any questions, comments? So was Paul, uh, his literal name, or uh, a language given to him? That's a good question. Saul, if I remember rightly, was his Hebrew name and Paul was his Roman name. And he chose that just to, well, well it's, it's, it's uh, the inspired book of Acts. We see the name change. We'll see it as they go on the missionary journey. His name suddenly changes from Saul to Paul. But it's, it's, it's believed that that would help him in his identification as the apostle to the Gentiles. He took his Gentile name because he was a Roman citizen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Paul, Paul refers to Jesus as Christ Jesus, as opposed to Jesus Christ. Yeah. Well, just um, uh, yeah, just because of course it, it's it's not a name as much as a title. So Christ is is of course the Greek for Christos. It's the Greek for Messiah. So Messiah Jesus. It, it, it's it's just uh, it's not his surname, first name, surname. It's just his title. So. I don't know if the if the order has any particular emphasis, but but either is is correct. Yeah. Anyone else? Before we close. Okay. Good. So, Father, we thank you for this time tonight. We thank you. We could take this window uh, on this Tuesday night and uh, just go through these chapters together. And we pray perhaps you give us some quiet time during this week to reflect, to read, to prepare our hearts going forward. And we pray for the next four Tuesdays that you would uh, let this be all our secret place of of just enjoying and getting to know these chapters and your amazing work uh, in in the early church and all the way through church history to today. We just thank you for this time and Uh, and bless all these thoughts to our hearts in Jesus name. Amen. Amen.